My name is John and I'm an alcoholic. My anonymity is thrown out of the window anyway, so it makes no difference. There are some people who uh, cannot stay anonymous. We go all over the world to talk about our experience. For Alcoholics Anonymous is not a group where you learn things by a book, but you learn things by experience. And you have to give that experience out in order to grow. I'm an alcoholic. And most people, when they see a white collar and a black shirt, think, well, now, that's impossible. Let me tell you, it is a good thing that I don't drink anymore and that you don't drink anymore. Otherwise, this whole city of Lexington would be off the map tomorrow morning. I go even a step further than that. Once upon a time, and now you better cross yourself if you are inclined to do so, once upon a time I even was the man who made the whiskey you got drunk on. How you like that? <laughs> hmm? I'm not going to mention any brand names, otherwise, oh God, they're made right here. I have been in Lexington, and I have been in Frankfurt, and I have been in Louisville, but I don't remember. I'm an alcoholic, but I've been sober a long time. I'm sober a little bit over 21 years. And for 21 years, I've run the circuit telling people about what can happen. And also, what can happen for the good. And the only person I can talk about is me. But I have to get something off my chest first, otherwise it will continue to be in my mind. When I came to this hotel this evening, I got a telephone message. I had called my office yesterday, where I have been speaking the day before yesterday in Waco, Texas, Today in Atlanta, and here I am in Lexington, and tomorrow I have to be in Oklahoma City, and Sunday morning I have to preach a few times. And so from time to time you have to call your office. And you know, I don't know if it goes with you as it is with me, uh, you get a feeling something is wrong. Do you ever get that? Uh, we are still very emotional people, especially be drunks. And something was in my mind, something went wrong. And I called yesterday and nothing went wrong. And then this morning, after I had spoken in Atlanta, I called again and they said, uh, why do you call? I said, I have a feeling there is something wrong. And my secretary said, uh, yeah, I think you're right. About a year and a half ago, I took a priest in the church who was an alcoholic. And I tried to help him, and I did, by the grace of God, as one of the tools. He uh, had left his diocese, his bishop didn't want him anymore, and I gave him a year probation to work with the alcoholics at the cathedral, for we have a, a alcoholic clinic, and he did wonderful, and half a year ago he was restored to be priest. 
And they told me yesterday that he hadn't been in his office for the last two days. And all the way from Atlanta to Louisville and Lexington, I was wondering what shall I do with him now. For there was only one thing, and that was he was drunk, wasn't he? Simple. After a year and a half. Well, we know, those of us who work with alcoholics, we know that, well, from time to time you have this, that a person goes away and, and, and there is nothing to fall back on. And so I was thinking to myself today, I said, shall I fire him or shall I give him a leave of absence or shall I put him in a place where he can get better? And I got this note. Father Eaton called from Oklahoma City to tell you that Father Payne had died. And they found him in bed this afternoon and he had been dead for two days. And so he died sober. And I had to get this off my mind for otherwise it stays on there. I'm going to, after this meeting, I'll find out what it is. Anyway. The world and life belongs to the living and not to the dead. And so we start from here. You know, the only person I can talk about is John Van Dyke. Now you can hear that I'm not born in this country, can't you? <laughs> but if you think it is bad, then what you do, you come over here and stand here and you talk in Dutch or in German or in French and you have a hell of a time. <laughs> I must speak in the language that is not my mother's language, but I've been living here for a long time and... Uh, However, I got my education in Europe, and that still shines through. I was born in a very small village in Holland. Van Dyke, you can't be anything else. <laughs> it was a very small village, and my family had lived there since 1503. That is a long time. They still, my grandmother still lived in the same house. It was built in 1503 on the dike. Well, you see, people got their names in about 1470. And uh, before that, you, were, you didn't have a last name. That, uh, that came later. Well, my father was one of those very unfortunate people who could not take part in the family inheritance. For the oldest boys had to take that, and there was very little left anyway. So he had to study. That was a shame. And so when he got married, uh, we as children, and we had... Four children, two brothers and a sister, we had to study. And we were reminded all the time by our father that, you know, he was really going out of his way to make a study. He was even not smoking cigars and he was not using any matches and you know what that is. And you start to develop a hell of an inferiority complex. Terrible. And I remember when I was in uh, secondary schooling, that we had to use second-hand books. I hated second-hand books. <laughs> and we never got any new clothes. It was always patched up, and I hated patched up clothes. And you know, that time, I'm, I'm an old man. Uh, that time, uh, there were no cars. I remember I saw my first car. There were bicycles. In Holland, is the country of bicycles, as you know. And every bicycle had a brand name. And my children, they know the brand names of cars, and they know if there's a Mustang, or, you know, they know the brand names of 
of, of airplanes, but we knew the brand names of, of bicycles. But my bicycle didn't have a brand name. Huh. <laughs> was painted over. Huh. Second hand again. And you see, I made up my mind that time that if I ever was getting older, that was going to stop. I was going to make a success. And therefore, the very beginning already, I became a tremendous materialist. I wanted to get things. I think most alcoholics are that way. I'll tell you a little bit later about that one. This was one of the first things, I think, what makes a person an alcoholic. I mean, especially me. And the second thing was that I was brought up in Holland in a very, well, a very negative religion. As you know, Holland, in, the, in my time, not anymore, but in my time was very predominant in the part where I came from, very predominant fundamentalist Protestant. And my mother was a very holy person, really she was too. And my father didn't have very much to say, and so we had to go to church three times on Sunday. And we couldn't do this, and we couldn't do that. And God always said, you can't do it. <laughs> and I didn't like him. <laughs> you can do this, and you can do that, and you cannot go ice skating on Sundays. And boy, I hated Sundays. And you couldn't read a book on Sundays, and I hated Sundays. You couldn't do anything. You were not allowed to dance. You were not allowed to swim. And you had to do it all on the sly. That's how you start to sneak drinks, you see. <laughs> and so uh, I didn't have a very good religion either. Secondly, I was a very shy person. But I liked the opposite sex. Hmm. Now, don't laugh so hard, for, you know, alcoholism and sex always go together. No, 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 no. Be honest. We don't talk about it in AA very often, you know. Oh, no. We keep those things in the closet we don't talk about. But I talk about it. That didn't help either. And then another thing started to develop later, and I'll tell you about it. I went to uh, secondary schooling. I spoke a few languages. We had to learn that. And then my father said to me, son, you want to go and study? And I said, no. I want to make money. <laughs> That's a good trait, you know. That's right. So uh, I wanted to see if I was a businessman, and I was, they tell me. And after one year, I wanted to go to the university. It is very difficult in Western Europe to go to the university, but I had been accepted. And my father said, you wouldn't say that you wouldn't study, and uh, now you have to do it on your own. Thank you. And so I studied, and I studied awful hard. And now came the great conflict already. When I was 18, I still remember this today. I went to my father one day and said, Father, I never will go to church anymore. And my father was the wisest man you ever saw. You know what my father said? He said, son, you are not 40 years old yet. That's all he said. 
And I didn't go. Period. I said, in university, I'm taught this way, in church, I'm taught that way. That cannot be. God cannot talk one way this way and the other way that way. Can be. He said, you're not 40 years old yet. And so, when I was 18, I lost all religion, too. And I became an agnostic. You know what that is, do you? An agnostic is not what people generally think it is. An agnostic is someone who says, God may be and God may not be, so what? <laughs> and I became that way. And then I started to really make money in my God. I was uh, endowed by my Creator with a very good set of brains. And I got first, I got a doctor's degree in chemistry. Then I got a doctor's degree in chemical engineering. I became an associate professor at the university. And finally, I came back after six years to the office where I had started as junior clerk. I came back as president. And now I was on top of the world. And now we start to go into the traits what make an alcoholic. Ah. Well, now they start to show. Here I was, a young fellow who finally had made it very early in life. And the first thing I did in Holland, <laughs> where the roads are this narrow, I bought the biggest car you ever saw. <laughs> and the color was canary yellow. You know why? I wanted people to say, Boy, there goes somebody. Mm -hmm. For you see, we all have a tremendous inferiority complex, basically. <laughs> and we want to be noticed. Very much so. When I look at these young fellows at the moment who are driving these low cars, and a lot of drunks do it too, you know, for <laughs> a fox gets old and loses his hair but never his tricks. <laughs> then I say, boy, we have a lot of work to do in AA. <laughs> and they'll come. Well, this is what I did. Now, I hope that nothing goes out of this room, for I'm going to make a confession. In Holland, in my day, you got engaged very early. Uh, when you were in university, then you were engaged, and you were half brought up by your father-in-law. And I was engaged to a wonderful girl, and her father was a great man. He was one of the great inventors of our day, and uh, he was a doctor also. And I was engaged for six years. But then I, then I met someone else. That <laughs> <laughs> someone else she looked like a cathedral. Hmm. <laughs> and there again is the alcoholic trait. <laughs> you see, we look at the outside, we don't look at the inside. True. Mm -hmm. And still... You must realize when you look around, the women who are married to alcoholics, they're all good-looking. That's true. Well, anyway, that happened too. I'm not going to tell anything further about that. 
I grew in Holland, and finally, when I was very young, I came to the very top. I made more money than the prime minister. And then the country became too small. Now, I haven't said anything about drinking yet, have I? Isn't it nice? Yes. I didn't drink. It wasn't necessary. But I wanted to spread my wings and uh, be always heard about the United States of America. It's a country where you could make a tremendous amount of money. The dollar bills are green and you pick them from the trees. And uh, my idea was to see if it could go to America and work very hard. Take all the dollars you can, put them in your pocket, and then in about 10, 15 years, then go home and take a rocking chair and rock. That was my idea. And my God, I made it, too. <laughs> so I got my chance to come here, but now comes the big mistake I made. As you know, about 34 years ago, we had uh, the repeal of Prohibition. And I was a chemist, I was an engineer, I was a manager, I was a businessman. And some of these European companies came over here to start in the liquor business. And I was asked <coughs> to be the head of a small company in the United States of America. And I said yes. I didn't know that time that I was allergic to drinking. And I came over here as an immigrant. I left everything I had. I left home. I left the country never to go back. And I'm still here, by the way. And I was going to make good. And at Prohibition time, at the repeal of Prohibition, the small companies were taken over by larger companies and by still larger. And I grew awful fast. And so, in about four or five years, I was director of research and development of the largest liquor company in the world. And now comes the trouble. Hmm. Well, you see, I came from a very small village. 872 populations. It's now 874. They have increased. <laughs> and I was cut out of the Dutch clay. And I had a tremendous education, but that's all I had. And I started to have to deal with great men. I traveled for five years all over the world. And I started to meet people you see in the newspaper all the time. And they could talk about all these subjects. And I couldn't. But, and now comes but, <laughs> if I took a bottle of scotch, boy, I could talk about anything. I remember how I went skiing in Switzerland one day. And I never had been on skis. Hmm. <laughs> there was a beautiful girl. And they, they, they're, they're, oh, they're funest as far as I'm concerned. And uh, she was a skimeistering. And she ran down the slope, and I had a bottle in my pocket. I always had, and I took a pint, and boy, I ran down too without breaking my leg. How I ever got there, only God knows. Once upon a time, I was in Scotland, and they wanted me to go grouse hunting. Do you know what that is? I never did. Uh, anyway, they were talking about horses, and I got drunker and drunker, and I could talk about horses, and the next day I was grouse hunting. <laughs> I had to start addressing people all over the world, and I speak seven languages fluently, but my God, with one bottle of scotch, I speak 16 of them.
so uh, this is how you start to get into this. You do it as an escape mechanism. You do it uh, to overcome your inferiority complex. You don't take the time to study, but you say you take a short circuit. And I did. And then comes finally the time that you cannot stop. But you don't admit this yet. You're not that far yet. Uh-uh-uh. I remember about 28 years ago that I knew there was something wrong and that I knew there was something wrong with my drinking. And so that was the first time the book came out. The yellow book, not the blue book. The blue book is new. But the yellow book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went to the bookstore in New York and bought it. And I had lunch with a friend of mine and he had some trouble too. And uh, he said to me, he said, you know, I think I need it more than you do. And I sold it for two double martinis. <laughs> and I still remember that when it was shoved under my face some years later. So you know really that there is something wrong with you, but you don't want to admit it. And I never did. <clears throat> I had, um, I was living now in a big estate. I had my own plane and my own chauffeur and my own butler and... Anything what anyone ever want to have. And when people only could have looked inside of me, they would have found that I was a total different person. For you see, we do not have any radar that we can look inside of people. It looks so very pretty from the outside. I was still being driven around by a chauffeur I still went and had, together with a few of my friends, our own private train, a private car. And people said, here is the great success story. But when they only would have looked at night, when you have to get up and you have to take a few drinks for your sanity. And people during the day, they see you take cocktails for lunch. But no one sees you in your private office when there is a bottle on the right-hand side of your desk and you take it out and you have to take a few good slugs in order to make it till 12 o'clock noon. And no one looks again in the afternoon. You become uh, completely apart from society. Then you start to lose your friends. And I lost them all. I think I was continuously drunk for eight years. I remember how a friend of mine got married in St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. And I was the best man and I never made it. I had a brand new packet, convertible. It was the first year the packet came out with their convertibles and... They gave a bachelor's party, but the bachelor's party was not enough. I had to get out someplace yet, you know. But I told you, sex is always mixed up on this. <laughs> the only way that I can remember is that I woke up in Bellevue Hospital on the operating table. But you know how sly an alcoholic is, do you? On one side a policeman, on the next side a doctor. And I asked him if they knew who I was. And they didn't know, but they should have known, I thought. And I even got my way out of that one. And finally, after 24 hours, we found the car and we found the wedding license. But you laugh about this. 
and I did at that time. Except in the last few years, I don't laugh anymore, for all my teeth are coming out as a result of that accident yet. And so you go from one into another. And then the hard parts start to happen. After you've lost your friend, and no one knows you anymore, you become the loneliest man in the world. I don't think that anybody can talk about loneliness except an alcoholic. You think that you are the only one, that no one else has that trouble. And you don't want anyone to know either. And so you go to the next bar, and there is where you make your confession to the fellow who is just as drunk as you are. That's why we go to the bars, you know, to talk to people. So lonely we are. And then comes a time that the little wheels inside of our heads start to roll and to roll and to roll and faster and faster and we think we get crazy. But we don't get crazy. We just are lonesome for someone to come. And then comes the time that even if you don't have any more religion, that you are in bed and the bed starts to shake and you start to shake and to pray in the same time. You don't know to whom to pray. And then things get pretty grim. For then your whole thinking mechanism is gone. You can't think anymore. And what then? You don't have the power anymore of any kind of a decision. And then it is not anymore up to you. For when you are an alcoholic and you drink, you see, you become insane. That's why the steps say could restore us to sanity. Any alcoholic who is drinking is insane. And I was insane. But you don't have any power anymore to make any decision. Don't fool yourself. The new people who come in, most of them cannot make a decision. That has to come from someplace else. Well, if you can't think anymore, then you start to make wrong decisions, do you? I did. In one year time, I lost everything I had. When I was 35 years old, I could have retired. I could have gone back to Holland, lived for the rest of my life. And I lost every nickel. I had lost every friend. Even my own brother didn't want to talk to me anymore. I didn't have anybody. And then, of course, you have lost your job. And you've lost your health. You know... For some of you, this may, this may help you. Twenty-two years ago, three of us were called into the office of the chairman of the board. And we were told that we had to uh, take a leave of absence or quit, resign, for they couldn't get any insurance on us anymore. Our livers were gone. And our eyes were bad, and our heart was no good. And we were drinking too much, we were all alcoholics. 
And so I went. And I lost all my money. But one of the three men who went was happens to be my boss. One of the greatest brains that America ever had. Another one was a friend of mine who was sales manager. And we were given one year to get ourselves back into health. And I remember how about four months later, he called me on the phone and he said, John, how are you doing? And I said, not so good. I still drink in spite of the fact that I don't have any money. He said, I'm not doing so good either. And two days later, I got another telephone call and he had bled to death in the middle of the night. A genius. And a month later, my other friend also died of drinking. And now I was alone. You would think that that's enough now, isn't it? Not enough yet. Still keep on. But it happened 22 years ago, and I'm here yet to tell you. For it is possible, you see. There is another power. You know that power works in a very, very remarkable way. As I told you, I didn't have any religion at all. I have lost everything I had. I was a lonesome individual. I live now again in an eight-dollar-a-week room. Instead of having a home with eight bathrooms and 14 and 15 bedrooms. And then an old lady who was sober. And she, her face was like a horse's face. She heard about this young fellow who was in trouble. You know, she was a very wise person. She never showed her face, otherwise I wouldn't be sober today. And the only thing what she did is she bought the book and she went to my landlord and I only had one room. <laughs> and she asked if she could go to the room of that young fellow and put the yellow book there. And she did. And the next morning I, when I woke up I wasn't feeling so good. But the yellow book was there, and I recognized the yellow book, which I had sold for two double martinis. I started to read about it. I started to want to find out who these people are who could do something about their drinking. And she had been very wise. She had put the meeting place down. Hmm. And the telephone of a minister of all people. I hadn't seen a minister for 17 years. Well, I called him, and he said to me, uh, he said, are you in trouble? I said, me? No. <laughs> but he had been to AA meetings, you know, that helps. <laughs> he knew his potatoes. <clears throat> so he said to me, now, you are not in trouble, but it may be that you would like to see me tonight. Huh? He didn't say anything else, you see. And I said, that's good. Well, you know, when you make a promise at 9 o'clock in the morning or at 10 o'clock in the morning and you are an alcoholic or a confirmed alcoholic and you make a promise for 5 o'clock at night, that's bad. <laughs> well, you're drunk. 
And here I was, here I have made a date with this holy man. And I remember, the only thing that I can remember is that he put his arms around me and he talked me sober. Uh-huh. He was a fellow who loved people so much. Who oozed out that he cared about people to such an extent that it came to you. And he is dead too. And I made him a promise that I would come to an AA meeting. And I still remember the date. Exactly. Morristown, New Jersey. What happened between Thursday and Sunday night, I don't know. I know, but I ain't going to tell you. <laughs> For three days, had been in my mind I had made this promise to go to an AA meeting and I found myself in New York on Sunday morning. In my mind, however, that I had promised this holy man I would be there and I tried to get as sober as I could and I went to the meeting and I wasn't sober. And there he was waiting for me. And that was my first meeting. I don't know who spoke. I don't know what was said, but here were some very interesting people, people who dared to look one another in the eye, and they didn't need any drink to have a lot of fun, and they were drinking coffee and I was shaking, you know how it goes. <laughs> and someone came to me and said, Johnny, he said, you know, you think you're shaking, you're nerving. <laughs> I came in two weeks ago and got a convulsion right here. <laughs> he was a friend of mine. <laughs> He and I were thinking the same way. And after that one meeting, I... I've been sober ever since. That's 21 so many years ago. For something happened there. The next day, I got a telephone call from a man who is dead now too. Who was a milkman. And he lived 30 miles away. And he called me on the phone and he just said, Johnny, I saw you last night. How do you do today? You know, people didn't do that to me. When I was in business, they called me, but they wanted to have something. <laughs> or they came to my home and they wanted to get drunk. I had the finest wine cellar there was in the state of New Jersey. And this fellow spent 35 or 40 cents of his own money. Just find out how I was. That kept me sober for one more day. And the next day there was a little package in my door from that same old lady. She never showed herself. Boy, was she wise. <laughs> and in that package were seven pieces of candy. And a little note on it, Johnny, if you want to take a drink, why don't you try a piece of candy to get your mind of it? The best present I ever got. You know, I got them presents and thousands and thousands of dollars in checks and, and all possible things, but here was the best present of all. And then was the next meeting night. And the first year I went to 200 meetings. This was the most important thing in the world, is to get sober. And I started to know people. 
And I start to do my life just completely over again. But just reverse. I had been interested in money and I was not interested in money anymore. I never had done anything for anybody. And now I was going to help other people. Then, you know, in the olden days, some of you are old timers here, but this is the hotbed of AA. In the olden days, you had to go to the old timers. You remember that? Well, I had to make the rounds, for in the first place, there were not very many people in with big degrees like I had, and they were always popping phonies. It was not that easy to get into AA that time. So I had to go, the old-timers, and the oldest old-timer, uh, who is now 28 years sober, a friend of Bill and of Doc, I had to go last. And when I met him, uh, he had a daughter. Hmm. And she was sitting on the couch, and she was knitting Argyle socks. <laughs> That was the first time that I had ever seen any good-looking girl make Argyle socks. <laughs> and while her father and I went to AA meetings and speak all over the place, I asked him one day if I could marry his daughter. And that's the closest he ever came to getting drunk. <laughs> For he only had one daughter. <laughs> and he was an alcoholic and he was sober five years longer than I am. And he was one of the founders. And uh, he is in the book, by the way. Forget it. So we went out together. W.W. and his son-in-law. <laughs> I didn't like that either. You know, we, we think we become holy when we start drinking, but we don't at all. That halo doesn't fit. I mean, the devil fits here on yet, you know, from time to time you have to say, Ow. I didn't like it to be the son-in-law, and so after a few years it became Dr. Van Dyke and his father-in-law. I like that better. So I was busy with AA, but then from time to time something else happens. You know, I, I bought with me an, an old copy of the stats. Some of you have the old book, don't you? The old book is a little different than the new book. The steps, the steps are a little different. Did you know that? The twelfth step is a little different. We don't talk about it anymore, but uh, the old. 12 step reads having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps and the new book says a spiritual awakening <laughs> now to be awakened is a little different than experiencing and some of us who had been in hell and I mean hell we had to have a spiritual experience in order that we could be changed. And I, I happened to have that. After I was sober for about three or four months, all of a sudden I knew what I had to do. I cannot tell you exactly, 
You see, you can never talk about a spiritual experience and you never can put it on a piece of paper either. There are things which you cannot say for they are so big. But you know what you will have to do. And there is no getting away from it. And you can fight and you can fight whatever you want, but you know what you have to do and it is just there. And when people say to me, and then who is it who you see or what do you hear, then the only thing what I can say is it is just him. That's all. Forget about the rest. I can't tell you. But I knew that day and night I knew that I had to proclaim something good. I had to tell people what happened to me. I had to be able to tell people that black could become white. That a drunk could be completely changed. And that I was the person who could show it that it could be done. And if they would have asked me if I could do it in any language, then that evening I could have spoken Arabic if necessary. So I knew what I had to do. I knew that I could help alcoholics. But what I had found was so much greater than that. For you see, we have a program not only for alcoholics. <laughs> we have a program for the church. And I hope they listen. We dare to stand up here and say, I am a sinner, isn't it? Here I stand. One of the highest positions in the church in the United States of America. And I dare to tell you that I am a damn drunk. All right? This is for the whole world, you see. Admit your failures. How many people do? But also, preach. Speak about hope. That people start to realize that they don't have to sit in hell all the time. Now, of course, I believe that you have to have been in hell first before you know what heaven is. Sorry, I mean... You know, these little steps don't do a thing to me. Uh-uh. I, I believe you have to have been in hell first before you know what heaven is. Well, I knew what I had to do. And now came the big struggle. <laughs> Can you figure out a fellow like me going in the ministry? You know, I started to work only with alcoholics and I went to all possible reformatories and jails and we spoke all over the place. And when I approached the church, then they said, no. No. You're not a good boy. <laughs> Alcoholics, and I went to all possible reformatories and jails, and we spoke all over the place. And when I approached the church, then they said, no. No. You're not a good boy. <laughs> I have been a playboy. I was known as a drunk. 
I was not good at all. But I'll tell you something. If God wants you to do something, he makes it come to pass regardless who says no. Ah, you know that? It may be that it is not a time ripe or something like that, you know. Fine. But I kept on working at it. And I kept on studying and I kept on speaking and I tried to help drunks. And a lot of people were in trouble. The whole world is full of trouble. And then one day it happened. <laughs> I sure remember that. I'm going to give you a, a, a secret. Uh, in my home, of course, we didn't serve any drinks. If people wanted to have a drink, they could take, bring their own bottle and take it out again. I didn't trust myself anymore either, you know. But when they came to my home, they uh, had to do what the family did. And I remember one day I was still in chemistry. <clears throat> I went back to chemistry and to make good money didn't mean very much. I, I could get any kind of a job. Uh, we had some guests over from Georgia. And it was on an Ash Wednesday. And in New Jersey it was very bad weather for sleet and snow and what more. And uh, we had again bought a new home, built a new home on the mountain. And I was on top of the world. And I had to go to church. And any of my guests who were there had to go to church too. Now the church I belonged to was eight miles away. And it was sleeting, bad weather. But opposite that church was an other meeting place for AA. Hmm. And we thought we go to church first and then to AA. It's logical, isn't it? So we went together. And in church were seven people. Hmm. And you know, across the street was snowing just as hard. <laughs> and there were 126 people there. <laughs> <clears throat> and so I got my bander up. I went to the AA meeting and uh, the next Sunday I said to this preacher, it was a very rich church by the way, I said, you know, there is something lacking here. Hmm. <laughs> I won't dare to tell you what I said to him, really. I wouldn't. I said, no, I, I won't go say this. I said, why don't you start shaking cocktails? Probably you'll get a few customers. And I told him the story that I'd been there and that there were so few people the evening on the preach, but I went across the street and there was an AA meeting and there were so, so many people there. He didn't say a word. The next year, in the intervening time, something had happened. The first place there was when <clears throat> I was confirmed in the church, and there came one of the great professors of Virginia Theological Seminary came over, and he was holding forth. And then there was a meeting of the bishops and the clergy of the whole state of New Jersey, and this fellow was going to speak, and he got sick. <laughs> you know, God has a way to make people sick, too. I believe that. <laughs> and they didn't, they couldn't find a speaker on a short notice. <laughs> well, you know, when you can talk to drunks and talk what you really have in your mind, you don't have to worry about it, do you? I only can talk about me. And so they called me at 9.30 in the morning and said, are you willing to talk before all those holy men? For sure. 
And uh, I came to all this holy man and I said, I'm going to talk to you about God. Well, that other was a subject you don't talk about the clergy, do you? Huh? And uh, I told him about my own experience that what I found God was like, that he was not a policeman, but that he was a father at his very, very best. And that he may not like what I'm doing, but that he loves me for what I am. And I told her my experience of being an alcoholic and what more. And I talked for about half an hour and then all of a sudden I said, are there any questions? Huh? They cut me for an hour and a half. <laughs> but in the front row was a bishop. And he called me the same afternoon and said, John, I've heard that you want to go to seminary. Is that so? I said, yes, sir. He said, I want to see you in my office. The next day I go to his office and I said, Bishop, I've done everything wrong was in the book and a lot of things which are not in the book for I invented them. <laughs> but I know one thing for that sure, that black can become white. I know that a person can change. Then he said to me, John, he said, I'll pray about it. He said, now you better don't do too much praying, Bishop. Why don't you take orders from your boss? Too. And he called me back the afternoon. He said, John, tomorrow you go to seminary. He said, thank you, sir. And I dropped my business, and I had a wife and two children. And I went to seminary. That's why I'm a priest. <laughs> That's why I wear a white collar and a black shirt. And I've been preaching ever since. But when it hadn't been for my experience in AA, and when it hadn't been for people like you, I never would have been there. For you see, when I got in, there was a tremendous amount of work to be done. When I went out of seminary, I got a small little mission. You know, those missions are from time to time, you have to have a gold engraved invitation to come to the women's meeting, you know that. And they were going to close it anyway. <laughs> so the bishop told me, do it as what you want to. Well, I didn't need the money. I asked permission if I could stay in chemistry and engineering. And I did that. The first year cost me $7,000 to be a priest. <laughs> but we had a ball. You know, the greatest thing in the world is to deal with people in trouble. And when you see uh, whole families line up in the pew and you say, my God, two weeks ago he was drunk. <laughs> Great. And that church grew just like topsy-turvy. It was a mission and they couldn't pay me any salary and ten years later I left and we had two assistants. And it was great. Dealing with people in trouble. I think that is... You, you know why in AA we go? You know why? We are not a club. We are not a country club. We are much more like a clinic, isn't it? This is what a church should be. Like a clinic. And the only co common denominator that you and I have is that we are drunk. 
The only common denominator you and I have is we need one another. And the other one is that we care for one another. This is what the world has to learn from AA. And so we started to deal with people in trouble. And I've dealt with people in trouble all my life. And you know, it gets tremendous. Three years ago, I had two heart attacks. I laugh about it. That's logical. For I have abused my body when I was much younger. And even Almighty God cannot take care for that one. When you do something wrong to your body by either drinking or what more, you have to pay the price for it. You get astonished how many alcoholics die on heart or cardiac failure. I was in Little Rock, Arkansas, 16 years ago. And there were 800 people at the meeting. And I was there again eight years ago. And there were 600 at the meeting. And I was there about a year ago. There were 800. And I asked how many of you did hear me 16 years ago? Six. How many of you did hear me eight years ago? Nine or ten. And the rest was all done. You see, we have to pay a price. And I think we should absolutely admit that. I got a few heart attacks. And you know, this is a great thing. This happened three years ago. Twenty-one years ago, I didn't have a friend in the world. No one cared if I lived or died. I didn't care either. There comes a time, I think, in people's life, and I think here's the turning point, that it is from time to time easier to die than it is to live. When I lost all the big jobs I had, I got four Christmas cards that Christmas after. They came from California where they didn't know yet. Three years ago, when I got a heart attack or two, I got in the first two and a half weeks, I got 1,400 letters. And half of the people I didn't even know. But I had met them at a meeting like this. And you know, we talk about praying, but here is praying in the rough. For the sorts of these people carried. And they still carry. Otherwise I wouldn't have been here tonight as they are right now. This is the great thing, what we have, that we have learned to care by necessity. We have to. But if you and I don't care anymore, then we fall flat on our face. And the world better listen. We have to learn to care for another and one another by necessity. And I look at all those people who have gone before us. The group where I came from, Morristown, New Jersey, which is one of the oldest groups in the country. There are three old-timers left. That old lady who got me sober, I finally saw her. And she looked awful. But you know, after a few, after a few years, she started to look prettier and prettier and prettier. Mm-hmm. For you don't look at the outside anymore, you look at the inside. 
And then just when I had been in Oklahoma City and I had been there for six years as dean of the cathedral, I came to New Jersey a year later. I came back and she waited for me to die. And she died in my arms. And her name is Mary. And the only one she ever got sober is me. <laughs> but someday she'll be St. Mary at there right now. For she has earned her pay. And I think about all those people, this minister, who was so wise when he said, Son, you better come anyway. And he is dead now too. But he has done his job in the world if it is the only job he ever did. And if any one of us ever really helped one person, then we have done our job. It has been my privilege to help a lot of people. And you know, I feel, I feel grateful above any measure. When I got this telegram today, or this telephone call this afternoon, then I thought to myself, well, John, he was sober, wasn't he? And this is the way we have to go on, you see. We have to learn and don't stand still. This has to deepen and deepen and deepen. We have to learn to love one another more and more and more. And then, you know, I believe this, that those of us who have gone through hell can point a great many people to what happened. For you see, we by necessity have to start to believe in the God of experience. Not the God you learn from a book. Not the God that someone teach you in Sunday school class making little crosses and little candles. But a God who is there, who is there when you need Him, and who is always willing to listen. A God who is not like a policeman, like I saw when I was a young boy, but who is like a father. And I know how hard a job He has to do. I have uh, five children. My oldest boy is twenty. See, I've been married. My, my wife never saw me drink. <laughs> my kids never saw me drink either. And I had my mind set on this boy. And he went to Annapolis. And a few weeks ago he was kicked out. Mm -hmm. It's hard to take, not for him, for me. And then I thought about God. You know how hard it is to take for him if we abused ourselves? Uh -huh. It was not hard on my boy at all. He was glad to get home and glad to get out. It was darned hard on his father. Think about that for a moment. You see? And we have to make ourselves these kind of pictures to understand. Now I've talked long enough I'm glad to be here. The only thing that I can do is, especially to those of you who are young, 
I can say this. I could do it by the grace of God, and you can. You see, once upon a time, they didn't let me in the church, and at the moment, I am dean of a cathedral. You know what that is? As close to where God is about. <laughs> and he can use those drums to help. But you have to look at it. And that's why when they ask me to come and speak someplace, I can't say no. <laughs> My doctor said, you may not travel. I said, oh, forget it. If I have to lay in the coffin all my life, then I don't live anywhere. I just as well can be a cauliflower. <laughs> and I have work to do. For you see, it is not only what we say, but who we are. When you see a person and say, he did it, there is someone who uh, says, my God, if he did it, I'm going to do it too. And then, of course, there is another reason why I like to come to those big meetings that I see so many of my friends here. There is one fellow who is over 80 at the end of the road there someplace, and I've seen him, I think, at about 20 conventions. Wonderful! And you know, when you sit in a restaurant and there is a meeting going on, and you see most people who know you very well, there is one, there is one, there is one. It is just like a tremendous fellowship. And then I get jealous like the dickens. But this is what the church should be. <laughs> and it ends. <laughs> but I'm trying to make it that way. May God bless you. And I'm so glad to be here. Thank you.